Hey everyone. If you're anything like me, you've had days where you felt really good about how you showed up. And then you had days where you didn't feel good. Maybe you got a piece of feedback that really made you feel bad, that confused you. Or maybe you noticed something about yourself that you felt off about, that you weren't happy about. Maybe you weren't proud about it and you wanted to do better. If you're anything like me, you've tried and you focused on changing, but it didn't come easy. And in a lot of cases, maybe you backed off. Today's episode is about a willingness to change. And this is something that really matters to me. You know, I've uh, shared in earlier podcasts, I've worked previously as a therapist and I've worked as a coach for a long time. And my whole job is about helping people and organizations change. But in that, I have to change. I have to grow. And that's been a lifelong pursuit of mine but I've really only gotten very comfortable with it and good with it in the past five or six years. And that's because change is hard and it's scary. So today's guest is someone who's got a great story of having that willingness to change and what it's done for him and what it can do for other people. So I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did myself. My name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we are in Atlanta, Georgia, and I have with me a leader that I find very inspirational and I've gotten to know quite well over the years, Rob Hansen. Uh, Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ram. Appreciate you having me. Absolutely. So, Rob, you have a storied career, and um, we're going to unpack lots of stuff in our time together. But as a starting point, I'd love you to tell us about your role today uh, and what that looks like. What do you do? Okay. Um, well, I'm the general manager of a urology business for BD, so the hospital urology business, which is both uh, more for general patients as well as surgical patients in the OR for surgical urology. Um, my day-to-day job is really managing a multifunctional team, uh, so sales, marketing, all the R&D projects, regulatory, operational, and, uh, and so I have uh, a great team that uh, drives this business uh, both in the U.S. And, and globally. Okay, cool. So when I said your career is, is storied, also, a lot of your career is like in one place and like growing and getting there. So can you take us right from your first serious like adult job on? How'd you get here? Sure. Um, well, I graduated from uh, Kansas State University with a degree in finance. And uh, I thought I was going to go work on Wall Street while I was in college. Um, I didn't have the perfect 4.0. I had good grades. But a uh, thing called Black Monday happened when I was in college. Uh, major changes on Wall Street. And so the only job I had was selling... I got a job uh, working for a brokerage selling penny stocks, and uh, my dad said, over my dead body, are you going to go do that? <laughs> and so uh, so I moved back uh, from, I was living in, uh, where I went to college in Kansas State. I was thought I was going to live in Kansas City, but I moved home to Minneapolis, and uh, kind of a goofy story, but my parents went on vacation. My dad uh, helped me get a job with Xerox, and I was going to have to move to Chicago selling office equipment. And... Uh, while they went on vacation, I came, but they came back, and I picked them up in a new car because um, I got a new company car that I actually wasn't paid for by the company, but I bought it uh, <laughs> because I got a different job in Minneapolis selling office equipment for the competition to Xerox. So um, I started work there. I was there for two and a half years in Minneapolis, and they promoted me to be a sales manager in Detroit, Michigan. And I worked there for another two and a half years uh, managing a sales team in southeast Michigan. And then uh, I interviewed with Bard, and uh, that was 25 years ago. I've had a series of jobs from a sales rep in, in Detroit. Um, I moved to Philadelphia as a district manager. I managed a team from Maine to Delaware. Mm-hmm. Then I became a director of sales, uh, managing what's now our critical care sales force. Uh, then I became a VP of sales. Then I became VP and general manager of the business. Um, as you and I have talked about before, I took a, a step backwards, mm-hmm. uh, went back and managed the sales organization, then got promoted again into uh, head of sales and marketing for the business. And then when BD bought us, I, they created a new structure where I'm the GM of the urology business. Right on. Awesome. I got to go back though. Okay. So your dad sets you up with this job at Xerox, goes away on vacation and comes back and you're working for the competition. 
He was pissed. <laughs> What's I hell? think he was more pissed that I bought a car. <laughs> what was the decision behind that, though? Well, I wanted to live in Minneapolis, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, when I graduated from college, um, I went back to the place where I'd worked during college bartending. And I was bartending for a couple of weeks while I was job searching and finalizing and going to Chicago, hopefully. And I met these two guys. Uh, Jeff Schoenbauer was the primary guy, and he was a, a sales guy for Icon. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, you don't want to go to Chicago. You want to you wanna stay here in Minneapolis go to work for us. Xerox sucks. And uh, <laughs> I'm like, well, and they said, you ought to come meet with Steve Nornberg. And uh, I went in for an interview, and I got the job, and the rest was history. That is hilarious. Um, okay, so tell us about growing up. Where'd you grow up? Um, I grew up, so I was born in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, about two hours east of Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Um my father and mother were from further north. And my mom was from Ladysmith, Wisconsin, and my dad was from Hayward. His family and my family moved there in the late 1800s from uh, Norway. And so big Hanson family in Hayward, Wisconsin. So we moved back to Hayward when I was five. Mm-hmm. It was about an hour north or two hours north of Eau Claire. And, um, you know, had a, well, I think you asked me where, where I, so I, I lived in uh, Hayward. And then uh, when I was a junior in high school, um, after my parents had divorced when I was in middle school, mm-hmm. Uh, my mom remarried uh, my stepdad, and we moved to Minneapolis. And uh, we were there for about six months, and he got promoted again. And uh, we moved to Wichita, Kansas. And so I spent my senior year in high school in Wichita, Kansas. Mm-hmm. And uh, ultimately, that led to where I went to college at Kansas State. Yeah. So um, your uh, kind of like origin growing up, father figure looms pretty big in that uh, when we've talked. Anything you want to share about that? Yeah, you know, I have uh, the great fortune of probably two father figures, mm-hmm. uh, my dad, John Hansen, and then my stepdad, Frank Tyson. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom and stepdad have been married since I was 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was always in my life. Um, my dad recently passed away uh, last November. Mm-hmm. My stepdad's 76 and seems to be plugging along really well. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, both huge influences in my life. Uh, my stepdad is a sales guy, you know, really got me going on that that side. Uh, my my dad, dad is uh, more of a financial guy. Yeah. Uh, worked in the insur- insurance industry for a long time, and so you know, I thought I was going to be a CPA, uh, and then I went flipped to finance and thought the Wall Street thing, but ultimately ended up running down the sales side. Uh, probably a big influence on my stepdad because I he and I lived together right after college because my mom was up at our lake house in Wisconsin. She had a my mom's an artist and had a has a business up there, and so he and I were bachelors uh, living in our house in <laughs> Minneapolis and. After he f- somewhat forgave me for uh, not going to work for Xerox, I would come home at the end of the day and tell him my war stories of uh, walking up and down skyscrapers, getting chased by security, uh, trying to sell copiers. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and when I started to get some paychecks, he goes, all right, maybe maybe you don't suck as bad as I think you will. So Right on. Worked yeah. out. Okay, so uh, today we're modern day Rob Henson. You're, you're in your day to day. You shared with me once this really interesting take that you have on interviewing that when you're interviewing a candidate, you want to know what they've done to invest in themselves. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, I've always tried to have a, uh, a different interview because most people, when they get to me, they've had many interviews with uh, others in sales management. Uh, I don't interview salespeople anymore, but um, I, you know, when you interview salespeople, you tend to interview a lot because we have a big organization and whether uh, turnover or promotions, et cetera, I'm always meeting with somebody. And so a unique question is always, you know, has always been, I really want to understand what they do to sharpen their acts. Um, and um, it impresses on me those that, you know, what I say, they live at the edge of their seat. You know, they're leaning yeah. forward in their life and, and trying to figure out how to be better. Um, you know, or do you just uh, the same guy with lots of piss and vinegar and you were a good athlete and you were competitive and money motivated and you're just leveraging that today? Or are you, are you really panicked that uh, if you don't get better and better, you're not going to, you're not going to win because the world changes around you. Yeah. So what I've learned about you when I spend time with you and also from that question that you ask in interviews, you really surround yourself and look to bring in people who aren't afraid to change, either because they're just interested in growing or because they're willing to take a hit, learn from it and really change who they are and develop. So if we think about that, when did you get comfortable with really pushing yourself and changing? Um, you know, I think Change to me isn't a singular event that becomes a big fulcrum that you look back and you go, oh my gosh, this is where I swerved from going straight to taking a left. Um, 
you know, I, I, uh, I mentioned when I took a step back, you know, uh, I had, was a really young, I was the youngest uh, general manager in CR Bard, uh, one of managing one of the four big businesses. And uh, honestly thought I was going to be, my title was VP and general manager. And I went up and had my review with my boss. And I, I seriously thought I was going to get promoted to be president because I just completed the largest acquisition in CR Bard's history in buying Medivans. And, uh, and we had struggled a little bit in the, in the first months, but uh, they chose to take me out. And, and so, you know, you're in that stunned place where you, you're, uh, I had recently got divorced at the same time. And so you're reeling around and trying to even find out where the floor is. Yeah. And, uh, and so, I, you know, that I, when I reflect back, I obviously see that as uh, a nidus for the change. Yeah. But I don't know that I realize the change internally. Yeah. Uh, until you really look back, and I think you even challenged me to look back at some of this in the past in our discussions. So, you know, the uh, net net, I think, change is a gradual thing. Yeah. And so, it's like the idea here is that you didn't one day just wake up and be like, "I'm going to change." That, of course, along the path, you've been growing, and and I do want to talk about your intellectual curiosity because it's deep. Like, you're really one of the most curious people I've met. But over time you've seemed to come to realize like, oh no, like change is actually my thing. Like I'm pretty focused on, on change. And it doesn't mean you're always willing to be like, I'm going to totally change today, but you've been pretty comfortable with trying to push yourself and grow. If we do take a step back though, let's, um, if you're comfortable with it, I'd love to unpack what you learned about yourself during that time where you had to take a step back. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is just real practical is that one of the things I got tasked with when I became the head of our business was to fix R&D, quote unquote. Right. You know, I worked for the COO at the time and he just said, go fix R&D. Yeah. And uh, I had spent my entire career up until that point leading sales organizations and had been really successful. That's part of the reason why they put me in the job. Yeah. And when you get taken out of the job and you look back and you say, God, I knew nothing about R&D. Yeah. I didn't know anything about buying companies. I really didn't know anything about marketing. I didn't know much about quality, regulatory, operations. Um, you know, and so I look back at what an amazing opportunity I was given and the learning that's come out of that, of not being in that job anymore has been a realization that you got to stop being such a arrogant know-it-all thinking I can do anything yeah. and realize that, oh my God, I really don't know anything. Yeah. And the, and then the more you learn, uh, the greater that thirst becomes because you don't know anything. Um, and so there's a humbling part of it that says, yeah, I mean, I've got to commit to lifelong learning because I just don't know much of anything. And, uh, and I don't mean to uh, minimize, uh, you know, that I haven't learned things, uh -huh. but again, you know, the more I learn, the more curious I get, because the more you peel back the layer of the onion, like, my God, there's so much more here that I need to understand. Yeah. An interesting thing though, cause I, I want to go further into this. A lot of people, they have to step back, right? They get taken out of a job. A lot of people pull the ripcord, they quit, they go into a cave and lick their wounds or they go into the next job. You stayed in the job, you decided to stay and you decided to do something with the, like, you know, the, the difficulty you took the hit. Why? Why did you stay? Yeah. You know, I, I wish I had something really reflective and deep here. Um, I owe child support and, and, uh, <laughs> that's alimony. Good. That's real. Um, you know, I, I bled barred green. Yeah. Um, and so I love the people I work with. Uh, I love the team under me. Um, you know, and I suppose I could even change my mind a few months later. You know, like I, they gave me, I think, I think this happened like on a Tuesday in the game until Friday, whether or not I wanted to leave or stay. Yeah. And I chose to stay. And uh, just the first week back meeting with, uh, you know, I took a new role, I took over a new team and learning what I did about how much work there was to do was invigorating in a big way. I mean, then you, you know, you put your weight into it and away you go. Yeah. So there was practical reasons, you know, child support and all that, but you also loved what you did. You love the company, you love the people you work with, but still a lot of people, and you've seen this, I've seen this, like we've seen this in our careers. A lot of people have people who stay in a role and decide that they were hard done by get better shut down and you did not do that instead you're like i'm committing to lifelong learning tell me about that what happened there 
Well, I think part of it, you know, there's always a confluence of events, but uh, all this happened maybe 18 months after I had finished my MBA, although I had committed to lifelong learning, I guess, before that because I had gone back to get my MBA back uh, 2008. But, uh, you know, when I got my MBA, I felt like I had a, I had a hole. You know, I, uh, when I got finished, I, you know, I, with two young girls, a big job, you know, I, was, I started my MBA at the same time I started the head of the business job, the general manager of uh, Bard Medical. And I, I think I slept four hours a day for two years. And, uh, and I would have thought I would have been happy to just have it over. And yeah. instead, it it was like, you know, gosh, I go get my PhD. I really like this. Like, yeah. uh, you know, I kind of, in full honesty, you know, I went to college. Uh, I'm still very close to my fraternity brothers, but I majored in fraternity. You know? <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, you, then you go back and you're like, God, the school stuff's actually pretty cool if you pay attention <laughs> and uh, in earnest. And so, you know, it hasn't stopped. <laughs> Good for you, man. So even before you had to take a step back from that role, you'd through the MBA, you'd already unlocked this this thing. It's really important, and you know, I'm not trying to um, position you in a way of saying like it's the most miraculous thing that you stayed in that job uh, and and decided to turn something positive into it. But it is an important thing because a lot of people will pull the ripcord. A lot of people would choose to be angry, blame the world, blame everyone else. And they might be right. Maybe other people were to blame. But at the same time, a lot of people would pull the ripcord and you didn't do that. And since then, you've gone on to like do huge things in that business, important things. You've helped build up people's careers, give people opportunities. By staying there, you did a lot and you've helped yourself change and you've helped other people change and grow. I do want to step into the personal life for a sec. So very rarely do I work with professionals who seem to actually enjoy their personal life as much as you do as well. Like you like life. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I think work is like uh three or four on the list. Yeah. Um, and so hopefully my boss ever listens to this, but <laughs> those other things are much more important. Yeah. You know, you might spend more time at the other, but uh, you start your day and, and you think about your wife and then your kids first and then your parents and your friends and then worry about, okay, what boxes do I have to check at work after I've made sure that I've uh, rolled through uh, their needs and my needs for them? Yeah. Well, so tell me a bit about you know your personal life because you know, you'd said you'd gone through a divorce and then what? Yeah. You know, I have two little girls. They were both in the single digits of age when I got divorced. Uh, hardest thing I've ever done and you know, is, a, is something that anybody that's been divorced will hang over their head for the rest of their lives. You know, would your children's lives be any different if uh, if you would not have gone through that? Um, but, you know, I, uh, uh, Jennifer, my wife, saved my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I did lots of things probably wrong before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, she's a big part of that. Uh, my kids are a big part of that. Uh, along with Jennifer came three young boys as well. And mm-hmm. so we have a Brady Bunch of five, mm-hmm. uh, three boys and two girls. All uh, been sandwiched in between twelve and seventeen, and mm-hmm. so, you know, over the last uh, it's been eight nine years. You know, it's uh, you watch all these kids grow up, and now we got two of them going off to college next year, and uh, you know, we've lived all the all the fun stuff other than infancy together. Yeah, right on. Um, what about the uh, the egg, the barbecue egg? I have two eggs. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> for for the audience, Rob and I were talking about barbecuing one time, and he told me a great story about this barbecue. That's what is it? The green egg? Yeah. Or are you yeah. talking about my ex wife taking the egg? The egg. The egg was the egg theft. The yes, terrible egg theft. Yes. But you've got two eggs now. I do have two. I had two before, and then it went down to one temporarily, and then uh, I added it back. So the lesson here, everyone, is if you lose an egg. Don't worry. You can always get your eggs back. That's it. You grab your uncle and a six pack of beer and you drive uh, 30 miles and you go, you get a new one. And and, uh, the prime rib made it for Christmas dinner that day. (laughs) You go get the egg. Just so everyone knows what we're talking about. Can you tell us what, what the egg is? So the egg is a a big green egg. It's literally a big green ceramic egg looking barbecue grill. And, uh, it's about indirect heat. So some people direct heat, but, uh, basically diffuses heat. And uh, if you smoke, you know, meats, fishes, mm-hmm. vegetables, whatever you're smoking, uh, it's a it's a Atlanta-based company, but it's based off of a ancient Japanese smoker that made out of uh, ceramic. Mm. So when your egg was taken, did you feel it was shellfish? 
and just from a like a hobby perspective, you're a you're a hunter, right? I am. I uh, you know it's kind of like saying you're a golfer. You know, I don't I don't golf all the time, but I do I do spend uh, a week deer hunting every year in northern Wisconsin. I've got hunting property up there. Uh, I've hunted the same deer stand since I was 14 years old, and and then. Uh, most falls, uh, occasionally I'll miss one, but uh, we go up to South Dakota and uh, bird hunt, do right. pheasant opener. Yeah, right on. Um, okay, so we're you know we're back into the modern day. Uh, thank you very much for sharing all of the uh, the personal, the professional history. So if we're thinking about professionals in your world and the business that you're that you're a part of, the willingness to change is super important about staying competitive, not just as a leader or a team member, but for businesses. So. How do you set that kind of tone with people? You know, I don't, I don't know if I've ever deliberately set the tone. I think that you have to lead by example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, and I don't even know if that's deliberate, mm-hmm. but it is just who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the people on my team, there are some people that lean really hard into change and, and improvement, and some are more hesitant. You know, you, even when you're interviewing somebody, I don't know that you know the extent to which they believe they want to go at um, their own axe sharpening, you know, to use yeah. the prior uh, descriptor. But you know, in the end, it's it's. Uh, I think that anybody, if you if hell, if your boss uh, is is running hard at uh, learning and continuing to challenge, um, you're inevitably gonna gonna see that and and uh, believe that it might be important. Yeah, but a lot of people, like you said, you know, it's almost like that um that athlete that was. Uh, was on that football team in high school or college. And then they just want to stay that person and kind of have that mindset for their life. There's a lot of people that just try and execute the same game plan over and over, do the same thing over and over again. Maybe walk through life with a head full of expectations based on assumed ability. So change and something I've really admired about you um, and why I asked you to do this is change is something that I, I believe that you really inspire in people. And I think, you know, you might not even realize like you've changed me, like you've given me great business advice. You helped me, you know, just your advice and your thoughtfulness is part of why I started this company. So your impact, the shadow that you cast in this way is very significant. So I want to ask you um, if you think of what are the things that keep people in their lane? What are some of the reasons that people become stagnant? You know, I don't, I can't, I've been working a lot on my empathy, by the way. Uh, and so <laughs> my uh, empathetic position is that I'm not so certain if I know why people stay in their lane. I could I could maybe jump to some conclusions. You know, I think part of it is uh, is maybe not an understanding, and, and I'll, I'll back up. Um, so I talked about my stepdad and how he and I were bachelors together in Minneapolis. Well, part of the reason why that happened is that when I was in high school, he's VP of sales for Cessna Citation Business Jets, and he lost his job. And uh, he struggled. Uh, he had two crappy jobs. You know, we were just talking about this at Thanksgiving. Uh, and uh, he was not a happy guy when I was that young, new professional. And I witnessed that, and that was going on a lot at that time. A lot of disruption, a changeover from lifelong careers in a single place, and and uh, I would tell you, I never wanted to be the guy who was fifty years old with obsolete skills. Yeah. And you see it over and over again. I've watched. I had people working for me in the past who had you know had a long career, but um, didn't change. And mm-hmm. and when you didn't see them change and and change with the times, as silly as that sounds, uh, they became irre- irrelevant. Yeah. And and so I think I had a, maybe an unconscious drive to never have that happen to me. And I, I think in today's world, um, you know, I look around at we, we in the medical device business and being a relatively large company, we have the ability to recruit some really good talent. And when you see how smart, hardworking, creative some of these, you know, 21, 22 year olds are, I mean, people worry about the younger generation, man, I'm like scared of them. Like they yeah. are really, really good. And, and, you know, yeah, they might be a little more uh, desiring to, skip levels of the ladder, mm-hmm. um, but man, they're fantastic. And so if you don't look around and see these people, how do you not, how yeah. do you not change? Well, and so, yeah, I love that you're opening this up because I've, I've heard you like in our conversations or conversations that I've been a part of in groups where you're like, Hey, you know, a good reason to think about your own development is when you look at the competition that's coming up behind you, you know, the young people who are coming up, why wouldn't you want to do that? And 
it's interesting hearing like a senior level leader talk about that kind of stuff because for me, that's more than just telling people like, oh, you know, develop yourself professionally, like read a book. You're really trying to change people's thinking here, which is like you will become irrelevant in the workspace unless you realize that there are people coming up that are so, so hungry and so talented and so passionate that they're going to come in and eclipse you. If you want to stay relevant, you got to you got to push. Yeah. And when did you like when did you first start talking about stuff like that, like openly? Because, I mean, you're real vocal about it now. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Um, you know, I think a practice that I always had, even when I got into more senior sales management, it was having long one on ones. You know, I, I, I don't do them as much as I should now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need to go back to it more. But, you know, I'd fly into my sales head's hometown and we'd spend a day together, yeah, like yeah. just one on one, you know, mm-hmm. and half of the time, a half a day really spent on their personal development and, and digging into what they really wanted. And, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, I think that's where a lot of that comes from. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't don't know. It just kind of folded in. You just found yourself doing it. Um, how many books do you read in a year? Like how many did you, we're at the close of the year now. So it's 2019 is about to end. How many books did you uh, knock out this year? Well, I have two weeks left. I'm at 49. Um, <laughs> but I do have a little bit of off time uh, during the holiday here. So I think I can I think I pull off three. Wow, man. Good for you. That's really yeah. good. I did miscount, though. I thought I was going to be able to exceed 52. I thought I was one or two ahead. And I counted the on my flight back from Tokyo yesterday and I was off. So Wow. Wow. Good for you. All right. So if you think in the past, let's say five years, if you think of yourself five years ago as a leader and then yourself today, what are some things that you can comfortably say that you've changed? Um, there's a lot of shades of gray of change. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll give that caveat because I, I'm a work in progress. You know, I, I've been hit with some things that, uh, you know, start with one of them you gave me is how much I wear my impatience. Yeah. And, uh, and so how intently and empathetically do I listen to the other person across the table? And, I'll mention this to people that I work on this and they'll say, oh my gosh, you really listen. Well, I go, you have no idea how much I have to work at it and focus. And, uh, you know, there's something in me that is really impatient and, uh, you know, wants to get up and run around, you know, I'm just, uh, and so I think that's something that I've continued to try to change. You know, I, I've even, I went through a corn fairy assessment recently and, and they highlighted, you know, my my need to improve my empathy, mm-hmm. which I, I used to really struggle with. It's like, how do you tell me I'm not empathy? I've been interviewing salespeople for 25 years and understanding what their level of empathy is and how good they are. But I, I've come to figure out that empathy and trying to figure out what your customer needs is very different from empathy of the human yeah. across the side, other side of the table. And so mm-hmm. I think that's a big deal. You know, I think another one that has probably changed a lot is that I've been focused in the early part of my career, only on achieving a job, an amount of money. And I think there's a perverse thing about our societal norm of achievement yeah. that if you look back, uh, when your child or your spouse or your friend eulogizes you after you've died, they're not going to talk about your sales numbers. Yeah. They're going to talk about your impact on other people, what kind of good person you were, what kind of good work you did. And so what does that resume look like? Yeah. And uh, I can't say that I was proud five years ago or 10 years ago on what that side of the ledger looked like. In fact, it might have been empty. Yeah, yeah. And that's changed. That's changed the last five, five, 10 years. Well, other people are the only ones that could measure that, I hope. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, I would say I wake up every day ashamed of how empty that still is. And I, and I work at it very hard. You know, how much do you love your kids? How much do you love your wife? How much do you... You know, do you pick up your phone and call your mom? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, are you truly trying to make friends for friends' sake instead of having some gain out of it? You know, do you do you listen to your kids or do you just nod? You know, that kind of stuff. So, how do you keep yourself honest and motivated on that stuff? Well, that's part of the lifelong learning. Is the more you learn, the more you realize, shit, that people are really good at this, and I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't you don't just hide in like, and not just for you, but like we talk about change and like thinking about self improvement. If you live in like a, like a hall of mirrors, then you're never going to really see any need to change. But if you start getting different perspectives, you're going to realize like how far behind you are or how much opportunity there is ahead for you. Yeah. Like my wife's a good sounding board. I mean, we talk about this 
probably every day, and she's probably sick of talking about it. But like when I brought up the empathy thing after my corn fairy assessment, she came home and she goes, "Oh my God, you have no empathy." <laughs> she goes, "One of the kids will be sick, and they don't they can't go to school one day." And I'm like, "Baloney, they're fine. They can go to school." <laughs> she goes, "You literally have none." And it was that kind of punch in the chin. You're like, "Man, I thought I did, but you're they're these people, these psychologists were right." And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so you need those punches in the chin uh, because we all as humans are overconfident it is our it's in our dna from survival and and that overconfidence breeds lots of bad habits and interpersonal relationships yeah so what's the role in being humble in in change what's the role yeah help me more what do you mean so even arrogant people have got to change like people change we get older you know like we lose a tooth like there, there's all this stuff but i guess there's a difference between just changing because time is marching on versus choosing to change because you realize that you've got a gap yeah well i think you know part of it uh, i do think some of it comes with age you know are you proud of the person that you are you become mm-hmm. um you know i i uh i don't talk about this a lot but my my stepdad sent me an email at a period of my life when before i got divorced and uh and i keep the email and it said i'm ashamed of you Ooh. and uh it's a you know, it takes people being honest with you like that. Um, and it doesn't hit you right away, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I kept it for a long time just so I could put it in his face one day. Yeah. And now I keep it in my email box because uh, I know he was right. Yeah. And uh, and so part of it is just maturation of, uh, you know, occasionally something will trigger. Or, you know, that's why I read. read. Reading, you know, people ask me about books. Why do you, what do you, you know, tell me about a good book to read. You don't read to learn from other humans. I mean, you're just as smart as those other people. You read to spur your imagination and right. to daydream. And and when you're reading, and these things all of a sudden make sense to you, and then you go, "Shit, he was right." Yeah. And I, you know, okay, own it. Yeah. So that 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 learning is about just expanding your own possibilities, your ideas, your ability to d- digest things. So you're smart. It just gives you an ability to expand your thinking and in expanding your thinking, you can realize like the wisdom of other people that you were missing before. That's the hope. Yeah. Um, so if you think about something, you've talked a lot about what you have changed. Is there anything that you want to change? Well, I think you and I have talked about this. You know, I should weigh about 245 pounds. I think I weigh about 270 pounds. I only think that because I I am scared of or I'm afraid of the uh, of the scale. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I uh, I live 64 miles from the office. Uh, I'll give you the excuses I give my wife, who's super fit. Yeah. Um, I live 64 miles from the office. I leave really early. I end up coming home late. Um, you know, I try to stay involved in my kids' lives. Well, you know, last night I landed from Tokyo. I went right to the school and watched my daughter sing in the choir concert. Uh, if it's a lacrosse game or something, I'm there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, my life and then I travel, you know, so I, I haven't found time to do that. And, and that's the next level of panic that it's, it's got to move beyond walking and push ups. you know, it's got to get into some pretty heavy duty sweat for me to be in a place that if I'm going to be around, I'm 85 years old. Um, that's a requirement. Okay. Okay. So let's start talking about other people. Um, young professionals coming up. So people early career, just starting out. What advice do you have for them about that kind of constant development, that sharpening your ax? What would you suggest for them to be thinking about? I think it's hard to tell somebody young that they've got to sharpen their ax because I do think you have to learn that on your own. You know, hopefully you surround yourself in an environment where people are, you know, doing that. I'm always amazed at how many people actually read. Look at how, I mean, why is there a New York Times book list? People have been doing this for a long time and it's not novel that I read, uh, that's what I do. I, you know, I steal from a Warren Buffett thing. You know, Warren Buffett spends eighty percent of his day reading. Wow. You know, why does he pick good stocks? Because he's reading. Yeah. He's not doing freaking emails. You know. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to the young person, I think that uh, I hope you surround yourself in an environment where the learning is a little bit mandatory. Um, but I think more than anything for a young person is that you hope you pick a career where you believe in the purpose. And uh, if you believe in the purpose, then you've got a lot of fire to help those. You know, that's part of the reason I chose the medical device industry is that I, I'm confident that what we do helps outcomes in hospitals and with surgeons. And, uh, man, I get up early because I love doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And if you love doing what you're doing and you want to do it better, you're going to have to improve. 
And you're going to have to change because uh, the one thing is that you learn about businesses, you know, I'm a firm believer in the theory of constraints. You know, what are the big things that are constraining your business or your business from achieving its goals? And when you look at those constraints, they change because of the environment, right? And the environment is constantly changing. And so you have to change with it. Yeah. Okay. So mid-career, someone, you know, has got, got a lot of runway left. What advice would you have for them? But they also have a ton of experience. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm probably that mid-career person. You know, I'm at the place now where I probably could retire. Uh-huh. Um, and then realization that, man, I am so far from that. I have so much work I want to do. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's more, you know, I, uh, I ask a lot of people, like, what do you want? You know, once you've gotten a level of financial security, your kids are in a place, you got more time, you invest more time in thinking, um, do you really know what you want? And, uh, you know, I went through that in a period where, you know, my children were young. I couldn't live out in Atlanta. What I wanted is to make sure that I had a really good job that stayed in the medical device industry, but I'd be close to my kids and I wasn't going to move. Um, could I have gone to another place and be CEO of a small company? I had those offers and I chose not, you know. Yeah. And so how do you go do what you want and, and really being self-reflective on what that is? Yeah, okay. And what about late career? So people that we might assume, well, they're just phoning it in now or they're just sticking in. Um, if you're thinking of someone late career, what advice would you have with them about like constantly sharpening your ax and like continuing to grow to your last day in the, in the office? Well, I think more than anything, uh, we've all heard that as valuable as wisdom is, or uh, the way you do things, uh, the way you do things aren't necessarily uh, able to stand the test of time. Mm-hmm. And so are you questioning the way you do anything? I, I, I all the time, I'm asking myself, like, is this level of thinking uh, sharp enough? Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, and are you self-reflective enough to realize that you don't have all the answers? Mm-hmm. You know, are you, because you, you know, I, I've had a big focus on curiosity. And so are you asking the smartest people about what they think and and then adding your wisdom to that I think is is uh, is where the where the benefit is okay yeah now I'm gonna ask you just some straight-up business questions if that's okay with you sure okay um, what do you think the big untapped or some big untapped opportunities are out there for the industry that you're in you know I think that uh, answer differs outside the US versus inside the US you know I think uh, the U.S. We spend way too much money on healthcare. Yeah. You know, I uh, my wife recently had a small surgical procedure done, and you look at the you look at the bill, you know, and they they charge twenty six thousand dollars, but they really only are going to ever get eight thousand dollars from the insurance company. And uh, you know, we have such a perverse economic environment here that I think the low hanging fruit is is how do you truly deliver cost change to our healthcare environment? Yeah. Um, you know, you go outside the U.S. and they, they don't have enough money yeah. to do health care. And, and so they're, you know, I just came off a, a trip to Japan where the, the government pays for all health care and, and they're really panicked about the aging population there. You know, there's yeah. curve, there's, you see these curves and they're going to have like 10% of the population over 90 years old. Like, holy cow, because yeah. they, they live so long. And so, um, you know, I think that that is the low-hanging fruit is that uh, for most of my career, we focused on clinical outcomes, and now the clinical won't matter unless the, there's an economic outcome. Right. And I think we undergun our thinking there all the time. And I think that's where, you know, at least my early training in finance has me always curious to learning how you truly save healthcare money without just trying to put a polish on it that makes a doctor or a purchasing committee believe that they're going to save some money. You really can deliver savings to healthcare. Yeah. And that's like, when you're saying that, that's uh, resonating with me a lot. If we think about these huge systems that we've got in place, like the why of why certain economies function certain ways or certain businesses function certain ways, there are these behemoths to create change in, to turn and to shift. So what do you think it takes to like create real change in spaces like that? Like if you're talking about making that kind of savings, like what can we actually do to, to create that kind of change? You know, I think you, you uh, I wish I knew the answer. You look at somebody like uh, Barack Obama, you could, you know, whether you're a Democrat or Republican in the U.S., uh, you, you know, you may have different perspectives on Obamacare, but 
as disruptive as it was to the U.S. healthcare system, it never delivered on its promise to really cover people and in a way that wasn't onerous on them financially and that didn't bend the cost curve. You know, we're at 17.6% of GDP is, is spent on healthcare in the U.S. And so, you know, obviously if the President of the United States and the Senate aren't able to, to right. accomplish that, then I, I think you you have to go back to, I do believe in the provider. You know, I do believe that you've got to assemble a thought leader group of physicians and nurses who who truly believe that the only way to save it, and I, but you know, in the U.S., as long as you have the big health insurance companies that are hugely profitable and the companies that are funding that, you're going to have to have something market happen that that'll change that curve. And uh, you know, honest, my honest answer to your question is, I don't know. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know if anyone does. And that's, I guess, like, you know, is it in the hands of politicians? And you just said, like, the highest office isn't able to really affect that kind of change. Is in the hands of the common citizen. Or is it in the hands of industry? Yeah, it's just not a crisis enough yet, okay. right? It's a problem. It's yeah. not a crisis. You yeah. know, when you have something like the Great Depression and and it creates things like uh, Medicaid and Medicare and uh, welfare programs, um, you know, and that markedly changes the world. Uh, you know, maybe something like that, but mm-hmm. we just haven't had that problem. I mean, look at the stock market right now; it is on fire yeah. for. Forever, draw any curve, two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, it's out of control, you mm-hmm. know? And uh, as a finance guy, you go, well, this can't go on forever. When yeah. when does does when, when's the rubber band snap here? Yeah, so like this is the idea of change. So like yeah, from like the therapeutic world, we play a lot with the idea that people and situations and systems only change when the pain inherent in change because you know pain is difficult even if it's change you like like let's say i want to become a marathon runner i like the idea but damn it, it's painful to do that it takes a lot of time a lot of effort so people and, and systems really only change when the pain that comes along with change becomes less than the pain of staying the same yeah or you i did, I did there's no learning that ever comes from happiness <laughs> the only learning ever comes from failure. Yeah, yeah. And so are you embracing failure and then figuring out how to fix things from there or change from there? Mm-hmm. Um, I can't think of any big learning I've ever had that's because of how happy I was at a particular point. It, you know, it might be the outcome later, but change didn't come from the happiness, came from the failure. Well, and so that's an interesting thing because, like, you know, I, I think that's a thing that, that we as leaders say a lot. It's like, oh, it's really your failures that make you who you are. It's the lessons you learn. But again, I want to go back to the, the beginning of our story. A lot of people, you have seen this, I have seen this, many people see this in their careers. Failure point, something bad happens, maybe something terrible happens. There's a difference between someone who takes that and changes and learns and someone who retreats and licks their wounds. And I don't want to um, shame or make anyone feel bad if you've had something so serious happen that you've had to pull back. But then at some point, did you get back up and charge in the fray? And I am a firm believer, like 110% believer, no matter what happens in my life. And I won't speak for anyone else's life, but in my life, if I take a hit, I'm getting back up. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to learn and change. And I firmly believe that you're someone who's the same. I try really hard when I talk to people like this to not just give them generalist advice, like learn something. Because it's like, what is it about me that has helped me be able to do that? And one of the things that I've really thought about is, is this painful enough that I'm willing to really change something that I know led to this? And then I think about the things that led to it and it's like, is this pain worse than the pain it will cause to change this thing? And in the spaces where I can change it, I do change it, but I'm real self-reflective about it. And I believe you to be a really self-reflective person. So I'm not asking you a specific question here, but is there anything you want to add to that train of thought that I just, I just uh, added in there? Yeah. You know, I think, um, you know, I, I look back at my life and I don't know that I'm the most courageous person ever. You know, I don't, uh, I've never looked at myself as high courage per se. You know, that was the one thing that when Bard hired people, it was all about courage. You know, if somebody dumped a beer on you in a ball game, would you turn around and punch them? Or would you say, you know, would you ignore it? And, uh, (laughs) and I'm not sure I would have turned around and punched somebody. Yeah. Well, that's, that's actually good. (laughs) It is good. (laughs) I might've hurt somebody. (laughs) But the, you know, the point is, is that as you're talking there, that the point that was in my head was that people look at people that they admire for their high courage and they think they just lack failure mm-hmm. or lack fear. Mm-hmm. And the point is, is they just 
they've learned from their fears in the past or they've gone through it and they understand how to handle it. And so I do believe that those that that get punched and don't fall down permanently have been self-reflective of these times of fear or failure. And you learn over time how to mentally deal with it. Yeah. And uh, there are people that don't deal with it. Well, I, you know, I read an article in the Japan Daily yesterday that there are a million Japanese that are in their 40s and 50s that have returned to live with their parents after losing their job. And half of them haven't left their home in six months. Mm -hmm. You know, so do you treat it because it's the first time you've ever been hit by something traumatic? And so how do you, I hope, you know, in today's world, and I, I try to live this with my kids, is that instead of just giving experiences, do you give challenges? You know, do yeah. they, can they learn along the way and experience some small failures so that the big one, the big one happens, it's, it's not catastrophic. Yeah, 100%. You know, I think of um, the most challenging period of my life, which is about three years ago. And I think about, uh, you know, all the stuff that was going on. I thought about when I started this company and all those things. Um, you were one of those people that I, I sought out and I asked advice for because I knew about, you were someone that I knew who had faced dark times, tough times, um, personally and professionally challenging times. And there's something I would suggest to people um, when you're thinking about like, hey, what do I need to change? Because like, you know, there's there's the change where it's like, hey, how do I want to grow and just continually grow? And, you know, Rob, as you were saying, sharpen your ax. But there are other times where you're like, damn, I need to change. Like some stuff's gone on. I need to learn. Something that I encourage people here is who do you know? that's gone through something that you can talk to and it's not like you're going to get that or maybe you will, maybe you'll get that like kernel of advice or you'll get that thing. But more so I'm a firm believer in just being around people who have lived it, being in that kind of brain trust and just talking through things and getting a sense of like, you might not get that one you know, gem of wisdom, but you will get the sense of like, Oh no, like people can do this. People do this every day. No, I totally agree. And that, that's why I mentioned earlier that, you know, are you uh, are you proud of the people that are around you and, and you have those people, right? Because those people aren't there in the moment of crisis unless you've spent time and energy building that friendship over time. You know, are they just part of your network yeah. because you had something to gain from them or are they truly a deep down friend that when you're in a tough spot, uh, you know they have answers. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, as we're closing off here, I, first I want to say like thank you so much for coming because this was um, one that I was really looking forward to. Uh, again, you've played a big role in, in how I've looked at this business and how I continue to, I mean, a month ago you gave me some great advice and I, of course I deeply appreciate it. Um, anything that you want to add in, you know, if you're thinking to a professional at any stage of their career, listen to this or a person who's just interested about this, is there anything that any authors you want to share, any quotes you want to share, any thinking you want to share about that topic of like really having a willingness to change? You know, uh, yeah, I hate to uh, recommend any particular books, but I think, you know, one that, that uh, I was shocked I'd never read, and I, I think I probably read it in the last year or so, was Marshall Goldsmith. I saw him doing an interview with uh, Andrew Cuomo, who's the newscaster, and I was like, who is this guy interviewing him? And it was Marshall Goldsmith, and he was really insightful. And so I picked up his book, uh, and, and I had heard it from others before, like, quote, unquote, what got you here won't get you there. And uh, whether you read the book or not, I think it's the general understanding that, you know, for somebody like me, I got, I got really high in an organization at a relatively young age because I worked my ass off. Um, I was super competitive. I was super money motivated. I, I was really career oriented. And because of uh, what got me there was not enough, it wouldn't get me where I am today. And I didn't know it at the time. And so, you know, by realizing something like that, like what got you here won't get you there. Um, if you know what you want, um, making sure you unbridle yourself and put your ego aside to be able to to figure out those things that need to change. And uh, and maybe you will get them. You know, um, hell, I don't even know what I want anymore. You know, I'm uh, I'm trying to figure it out every single day, and and uh, all I know is that uh, if I don't figure out the things that are holding me back. I'll, I'll never get what I want when the, when the opportunity arises. Right on Rob. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, as we're closing off, I, I want to put this out there. Anybody can work hard. And if your strategy for your career is just to come in and outwork everyone, keep your head down and just do it until you get what you want. 
That's not a bad strategy, but keep in mind, anybody can work hard. I believe that the people who can both work hard and truly reflect, take that time where maybe you have to wrestle with your ego. Maybe you have to take a hit. Maybe you have to truly humble yourself. But in those times, if you can really commit to getting over that horizon of the self and find out all of the different ways that you can be, all of the different opportunities that you have, that's when you're going to have a career that's not just constantly progressing, but one that also stimulates you to be the best version of who you are. So with that, Rob, thanks once again for coming in. This has uh, been an awesome session. And Dave, drop the beat. That was a great conversation. And uh, again, Rob is someone that I find very inspirational. There would be no cadence leadership and communication without Rob. Uh, He was the person that really encouraged me to put up my own shingle and start it. So thank you, Rob, for everything you've done for me and for being on the show, because I believe there's a lot of great takeaways for everyone on it. You know, as I said earlier, change is tough, tough, tough. Uh, It's not meant to be easy. And in fact, I'm a real believer in if something's easy, it's probably not necessarily authentic. I think that's when we're playing in the space of preference. And I prefer all sorts of things. But being authentic is tough. Being authentic means that you're doing the right thing 100% of the time. And the right thing doesn't always feel good. In fact, sometimes that right thing can feel really, really bad. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of diligence to not just operate on preference but real authenticity. And real authenticity means looking at the world around us and making sure that we're adapting in ways that is conducive to having a great environment for everyone. So I hope everyone got as much out of today's episode as I did. And then we'll see you next time on One Step Beyond.